Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Taylor Riggs dropping by the studio to get us up to speed. Take away Taylor once again, net interest income. Right. I think the price action that you were talking about down about one half of 1% sort of says it all. This feels sort of exactly what we were expecting. This is all in line with all of the other banks. We knew that the net interest income was going to miss slightly. Of course, this did, but not by a ton. I think the outlook will be for Bank of America what they can forecast going forward now because we know that margins and net interest income needs to come down slightly for that full year. We've got a great top live blog on the Bloomberg Terminal just sort of breaking down the numbers and the commentary as these earnings come through from Wall Street. And one takeaway, just the consumer business ticking away, revenue up, net income up, credit provision stable. It's just ticking over nicely, Mm -hmm. isn't it? John, this is my theme. I think this is a healthy consumer. We heard this from Citigroup. We heard this from JP Morgan. I spoke with the Wells Fargo CFO last night. They're saying that they are still very, very much betting on the consumer. So despite the fact that loans are growing a little bit slowly, you have some mortgages that are coming in low, low, you're having the credit card business really be a standout performer, both within the branded cards of Citigroup and JP Morgan. I think the consumer here is still a very, very strong story and something that the banks are betting on going forward. Well, Bank of America pretty much unchanged now in the pre-market. We have the good fortune of having Chris Morangi in the studio as well, Cabelli Fund's co-chief investment officer. So Chris, good morning to you. Your early take, please. Good morning, John. Thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, you're seeing a lot of commonalities between uh, uh, Bank of America, Bank of New York, and the banks yesterday. That is um, the impact of a flat curve uh, and then uh, offset by cost cuts, uh, investment of technology, and very large capital returns. Big buyback from Bank of America, um, slightly smaller one from Bank of New York, yeah. but pretty impressive nonetheless. The single line, John, that I saw when the earnings came out it was about two-thirds of the way down the, you know, the propaganda. 7% of shares in the last 12 months. That's what we call Intel-like. That's what Intel did. They invented almost 20 or 30 years ago. The use of cash by these banks it speaks of everything Ben Bernanke talked about in the heat of early 2008. Well, they've had the big green light from the regulators to, the to do this, haven't they, Chris? Can we do a shout-out to Charles Peabody? I mean, he called this... Absolutely nailed this four years ago. So we've got to try and understand where the news here. Where is the news here, Chris? Because sure, the net interest income story is going to be weighing down some of these banks as the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates. That shouldn't be news for so many people. The buyback plan shouldn't be news. Yeah, I think Where's the, the edge here. I, I, th- I think it's it's in the strength of the consumer franchise, the consumer business. Um, you know, again, we're seeing kind of mixed data um, on the economy. Industrials rolling over, but the consumer hanging in there. Uh, good retail sales yesterday, obviously. And the uh, consumer's got to put their spending somewhere and they're putting it on the credit card. Isn't that what's amazing about this particular regime in the markets? That the data's still good, that the earnings look okay, and the Federal Reserve's about to cut interest rates, maybe not just once, maybe twice, maybe even three times in the next 12 months, Chris. Yeah, so it makes you wonder what the Fed is seeing. And, and I guess the hope is that the Fed is wrong if they're seeing you know, some really dark clouds on the horizon. Taylor, what else do you see here? I'll highlight trading revenue just because we know that we're looking at equity and FIC. We do see that um, the trading revenue was a broad 
match, I guess, across the board, which is a good thing. Usually we've seen uh, companies miss. The FIC came in better than expected, uh, 2.1 versus $2.08 billion. So I like FIC because you did yeah. see a big bond move at the end of the second quarter that helped oh. them a little bit despite the low vol in the yeah. equity market. Chris, you've been a Wall Street observer for years. Deutsche Bank going through massive triage right now. What is your view of New York trading? As Taylor mentions, FIC and the rest of it. It's not that it's a dinosaur. I know that's too inflammatory. But is there a future for these big banks to lock up capital to affect trading? Or does it drift away? Yeah, the, the outlook is not good. And I mean, you've seen that again um, in the earnings today for Bank of, of New York, which is a, obviously a very large custody business. Um, you know, the capital is going elsewhere. Um, you know, trading is a much less profitable business for a lot of reasons. Um, so, you know, the 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 bright spot has been certainly in the consumer and um and it's not been in uh, the new york trading you own away from the too big to fail banks american express is a large holding but you've got many other holdings yeah. that are removed is that like a sidecar banking or is do you look at it almost as a separate industry from the banks we're talking about yeah, this you know, the, week the, the, the big banks have a habit of blowing themselves up every decade really? or so <laughs> i didn't know that so uh you know you know one of the things that we're not talking about this morning of course are, are credit our charge-offs um because they've been pretty good that's not going to last forever. At some point, that's going to turn over, and, and these companies, these uh, banks are going to report losses. We try to stay away from those by owning, um, you know, fee-based banks like the trust banks, for example. Got to talk about the technology sector with you as well, Chris. Not just the financials. Before mm. we let you go, G7 finance ministers meeting today to discuss a French proposal of a digital tax in Washington D.C. More tech hearings. What are your thoughts on what's going on, just from a regulatory standpoint yeah, so and the tax standpoint? Not- not to get too cosmic at this hour of the morning before drinks, but oh, you know, I, th- I think the this is a the governments around the world trying to put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, they've seen uh, these tech companies disintermediate a lot of companies, costing a lot of jobs, disintermediate lo- local taxing authorities, and now disintermediating potentially the core function of government, which is to issue and maintain a currency. Um, so they've probably gone a little bit far, and, and the governments are, are pushing back along a lot of vectors: antitrust, um, privacy and obviously crypto. Do these issues shape the kind of companies, shape the kind of ideas that you have on the companies that you want to own? Well, listen, I think uh, we, we look at regulatory risk across a lot of different industries, certainly in media. It is the key risk, always will be the key risk in owning cable companies, for example. And so that's that's probably true for the uh, for the oh, tech companies as in well. The, in the time we've got left, give us a Marangi Gabelli media update. You've been extraordinary in long-term ownership of that, particularly with the elevation of Comcast over the last decade uh, as well. Is the enthusiasm still there? It it is. So guess what? The media world is changing, and the way to play it is to own the broadband pipes, and that's Comcast and and Charter in the U.S., Liberty Global outside the U.S., and then you got to be selective on the content. You need the scale companies like Disney, or you need the niches like sports content, the Braves, MSG, um, and some others. Will the tech companies go after those sport rights? Are they going to rip those away from the traditional vendors? So they're going to, uh, I think they will bid for them. Whether they win them or not is, is another question. I think the NFL would like to maintain uh, football on broadcast for the foreseeable future. Chris Ranke, thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Really, really appreciate it, particularly and thank you, uh, the bank analysis. Taylor Riggs, thank you so much uh, as well. Within Bank of America, within earnings, Jen Farrow and I felt that we really should touch 
on what is truly a changing day for the United States of Europe. Maria Tadeo is knee-deep in this. She is in Chantilly. Is, is that how you pronounce it, Maria? Chantilly, uh, France? It's more like Chantilly. Chantilly. And this is where whipped cream was invented. What's important for you to know is Maria's uh, talking to us on her things. phone from, <laughs> from a castle. It's like this gorgiosity castle where you think they do a, you know, a fancy uh, French film. And it's a place of the gastronomy whipped cream where they figured out sugar and cream years ago. You were there with a French finance minister uh, Maria, and I thought he was extraordinary about the new Europe and their pushback to technology and particularly Libra. What was his yes. tone about Facebook's technical effort? I think, uh, Tom, in very simple terms, they hate it. They hate the idea behind uh, Libra. They just don't like it because they don't understand what is the end game. They don't like the idea that Facebook could almost rival the euro. The Europeans are trying to prop up the euro. This is an issue. And also, yeah. they take the scandals with the data and the privacy issues very seriously, so they really don't like it. John, the Bitcoin, it's, I'm thinking French now, the Bitcoin has moved four standard deviations, plus two to minus two in like six days. I mean, that's the volatility these so, Tom, you've identified a space, an area where there is some unity at the G7 today for finance ministers. It's the area of division that I think is going to be revealing through the day between the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, and Bruno Le Maire. Maria, talk to me about the digital tax that the French want to implement, who it impacts, and the pushback we could get from the United States today. The French will tell you this is a country that is a sovereign nation and uh, they want to go ahead with this and they have already, in fact, voted in favor of this in the Senate. So it will happen unless there's an agreement at an OECD level, which is frankly what the French are hoping for. But it hasn't really happened as quickly as they wanted to, so they just decided to go ahead and do it alone. The Americans will do it. They think there's an almost anti-American bias in many of the decisions that are taken in France and that companies are punished just because they do well and the Europeans simply don't have that kind of technology. So that could be an issue. And also the dollar. I think that the Europeans are aware that Trump likes a weak dollar and that could have an impact on the euro. Yeah. Okay. What's a digital tax? I, I mean, what are we, ta who's taxing what, when, where? Well, this is the whole point of this thing. Uh, the French said, let's just uh, not be naive. We know that in Europe, there's many low-tax jurisdictions like the Irish Republic, and we know that the money that gets made in France ultimately goes uh, channeled or funded okay. to Ireland. So we don't like that. Companies that make money here will have to pay taxes in this country. It is also strange because these companies will tell you, you don't really understand how we operate. And the French will tell you, well, we need to raise money. This is something that the president has said he wants to do. Right. The French are very keen on this idea of new capitalism, mostly responding to the yellow vest. And they want to go ahead with this. Okay, fine. But great. What's the Irish response to this? Well, this is where it gets very tricky because the Irish will tell you we don't want our situation to change because jobs are on the line and we have to speak as one voice. We don't like the fact that the French just came in and stormed the European Union with this idea and didn't actually <clears throat> yeah. talk to countries like the Dutch, the Irish, and they're against it. So you can see yeah. why this is so problematic to get done at an EU level. I, I recommend uh, 
Maria La Capentanier, Les Cuisines de Vettel, Chateau Chantilly. Oh, I love it when you speak French. <laughs> this is great. Carry People on, drive. I can say, Tom, but if, but if I can just say very quickly, the French are actually downplaying the whole lavishness here because Emmanuel Macron and one of his ministers was caught up in a scandal because of his very lavish lifestyle. Lobster dinners. So the French are pulling back from that. What, what, what are you telling me? They're going to McDonald's in Chantilly? All the well, number two value meal? Well, they'll tell you, uh, you know, we can just cut back wait, wait, the census. We don't, it, we, we don't have to go all out. No, we got to make some news today, Maria. Have you ever ha- have you ever been in a McDonald's? I have been. Once. Many times. <laughs> Maria, thank you so much. <laughs> Maria, Maria today. John Farrell and Tom Keen right now with what has become always an interesting in- interview, but particularly across all of the Bloomberg world has become exceptionally important. He is Mitchell Rochelle, and he's not selling real estate. He's an accountant at PwC where he counts the beans. Let's start with what Bloomberg 1130, Boston 1061 FM, 99.1 in Washington care about which is the taxes on real estate. Now we're on a number of quarters. What have we learned about the Trump tax effect on real estate for these big Democratic cities that they went after? You used to have a partner when you owned real estate in one of these states, which was the federal government, because you could get you could deduct your property taxes, which are exorbitant in some right. of those jurisdictions. And that partner's gone. And when people are making the decision to buy versus rent, absent that partner, they're thinking rent makes a better decision. What have you learned in the last two quarters about what people are doing when they see those that decision tree of cash out the door? A lot of them are staying put. So if they're renting, um, they're staying in the, in the place where they're renting. If they have a starter home, they're staying in the starter home. Um, or they're just picking up and moving to Florida or Texas. And, and that is a force of nature. We're seeing it. Mitch, I'd love your thoughts on the economic data we've got this morning as well. We had a drop in apartment building outweighed by a pickup in single family projects. Is that something you're seeing play out too? Well, what's interesting about apartment, John, is it, that's probably overbuilt. The, there's clearly this shift, and I would argue that it's almost become secular. People are just saying, I'm never going to own. Um, so there, that's been happening for a while. Apartment developers and REITs and have been building apartments, and they're just pumping the brakes there because in some markets, they're seeing rent reductions because they just have too much product in the market. We've seen that in New York City. A little bit. New York is an island, metaphorically, and in reality. So it's hard to tell because there's a lot of stratification of what's going on in the market. But if you look at, you mentioned University of Michigan, uh, you look at Ann Arbor, uh, rents are dropping. My son's a student there, and rents have fallen by 15%. No, that's what he says. No, that's for I'm, I'm the guarantor in the lease, Tom. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> no, it's not all going into his Venmo on the side. <laughs> when, you, when you look at real estate, we're going to have you come back here, but when you look at the national picture right now, what everybody wants to know is when do prices actually start going up with that enthusiasm? Which we were weaned on. It ain't out there, is it? Well, what the problem is, if you look at data nationally, home prices continue to go up because of the supply and demand imbalance. Uh, but if you're selling your home and if it's above a 
maybe a $600,000 price point. It certainly doesn't feel that way because there's a lot less demand above that price point. The starter home market's interesting. What's going on right now, you have baby boomers who are selling their home and downsizing and competing with the millennial generation buying their right. first. So they're actually competing. Children are competing with their parents for Is that homes. starter homes in Washington, starter homes in New York, starter homes in Boston, and four other San Fran- Good morning, San Francisco. What's a, what's a starter home, John, in New York? $1.5 million? Right, but that's on, again, this crazy island. That's but the you, problem, isn't it? You take an hour car ride or train ride away, and the starter home can be $400,000. And that's a conventional mortgage that's very accessible. And But that could be the same home that, you know, a, a baby boomer is moving up and trying to get a smaller home. Mitch, I'd love your thoughts on what monetary policy has and hasn't done. We've seen a load of mortgage refinancing activity as rates have dropped lower. Have we seen any increase in purchasing? No. It, it, interestingly enough, John, I would have thought that it would have fueled more. But the problem is, I, I've said probably before on this show, you can't buy a house that's not for sale. And when existing home inventory nationally is 4.3 months, it, it doesn't matter how low the rates go. You just can't buy a house that's not on the market. But you just said, you just said. Did I contradict myself? Yeah, no, but you just said above 600000 there's a ton of houses for sale. There's a ton of houses, but the problem is the buyers, they don't have a bid that high, right? So the, the buyers are very robust in the 600000 and below, and then the 600000 above, because what's happening is those are the people who are downsizing in many cases and going into that lower price point. Let's come back. Mitch Rochelle with us. Always fascinating with PwC and some of the real estate trends uh, that we see uh, nationwide. There are little jewels you can get from J.P. Morgan. We protect the copyright of all our guests. One M. Feroli. With two simple pages and one more paragraph that is absolutely brilliant on the global ramifications, the global dimensions of all this R-starred baloney of the modern federal bank. We begin with Michael Ferroli looking at Marshallian crosses of our current accounts and global interest rates. Michael, is Jerome Powell central banker to the world? Uh, well, the Fed has always been pretty central, at least in the post-war period, uh, and he has been, of course, over the past few weeks or months, more sensitive to global development. So the Fed has always been influencing global developments, and more recently, they've been taking, I think, larger account of what's happening abroad. But even without global influences, our start in the U.S. would would have come down meaningfully over the past 20 years. So we're in a disinflation, lower terminal rate mode, which you canonized four or five years ago, Michael. Explain the global ramifications. Is it just as simple? Is there exporting disinflation and outright deflation to the United States? Right. So interest rates are obviously low in the U.S. And we often talk about, economists often talk about that as reflecting slower trend growth due to demographics, productivity, etc. However, there's an important uh, global dimension here, which is that The U.S. obviously has run a large current account deficit over the past couple decades, which means we import more financial capital, or a net importer of financial capital. And all else equal, that's pushing down interest rates in the U.S. So it's not just the saving and investment balance in the U.S. that's influencing our interest rates, but 
with saving an investment balance abroad. And those factors seem like they are yeah. almost surely pushing down interest rates in the U.S. And Paul, you know the equation, IR equals G <laughs> plus omega uh, alpha over R. My eyes are ki- alpha over tau, I think. Yeah. I, he, what's he doing with all the Greek letters in the summer? Come I, on, Michael. I, I, I was sticking with the graphs. Stuff. I was sticking with the pictures, Tom, <laughs> the graphs. So, Michael, I mean, we talk about uh, in the globalization, the world's getting smaller, but Boy, you take a look at the U.S. economy still relatively strong in the face of, you know, just extraordinary weakness in Europe, uh, deceleration uh, in China. To what degree, no one's really sure. How do you kind of square that circle here? How long do you expect the U.S. to kind of remain relatively strong rest versus the rest of the world? Well, I think the strength has really owed to two factors. One is, most importantly, has been the consumer, which we saw yesterday continues to just power ahead right through June and probably into the rest of the summer. Uh, the second factor is that government has actually been pretty strong at all levels, state, local, and federal uh, government spending, that is. So I think that has those two factors have helped insulate the U.S. Uh, you know, we, as in Greenspan's famous words, we can't remain an island of prosperity forever. But uh, we do think that uh, we'll see some slowing in the second half, but that you know, some of these domestic factors should keep us doing all right in the second half, maybe a little little slower than in the uh, first half. Michael, what is global autark- autarky or estimated autarky? What, what, what are we talking right, so about there? Autarky is a, um, a state of the world, uh, an economic concept of a country that doesn't trade uh, with the rest of the world. So, you know, a country like North Korea would be considered autarky. Okay, but it's also at the margin the country President Trump wants. <laughs> in, in that direction, yes. Uh, yes, in that direction. Close. That's called at the margin, <laughs> Professor. Yes. Uh, so, to the extent we close ourselves off to trade to the rest of the world, we're also going to close ourselves off to uh, capital flows to the rest of the world, just as a matter of arithmetic. Uh, that probably wouldn't be a good idea because the rest of the globe is financing a lot of our investment right now. We're not saving enough. Now, we could move in a direction of saving more, which would involve at least at the policy level, reducing federal deficits. But that doesn't seem to be, you know, a big priority right now. So in absence of higher domestic saving, we need foreign saving to, to finance our investment. We need investment to continue to, you know, in, increase growth and increase living standards. So, Mike, I'm just looking on my Bloomberg screen right now, the German 10-year at minus 0.288%. How much longer can negative interest rates around the world, particularly in Europe, uh, remain? What's the solution if there is one? I mean, in Europe and Japan, they're in a, a more difficult spot than we are, obviously. I think the solution, uh, you know, probably is to, first of all, it's like when you're on antibiotics, you don't want to uh, get off it before the work is done. I think in those countries, you are seeing progress toward tighter labor markets. And maybe over time, and time being measured in years, we could start to see that show up in higher price pressures and inflation, which would invite, eventually get us away from these negative interest rates. Uh, fiscal policy could probably also help, particularly uh, in the Eurozone, where, yeah. uh, you know, they're not, no, they're no longer moving in a direction of austerity, but they are certainly not using uh, the yeah. fiscal space that could be there. Michael Faroli, uh, your colleague, Dr. Kasman, was on with us the other day for a quick phone call. And he really emphasized J.P. Morgan is certainty not going to go to a 50, bay, uh, 50 rate cut uh, dynamic. I don't want to get in the parlor game of 25 or 50 beeps, mm-hmm. but what's your vector if we get a 25 basis point cut? Is it that we're measured and that sets in 
place an inertial force to ever lower interest rates? Or can it actually be, be one and done and wait to see? Well, I think after after the July meeting, later in, in two weeks from today, when we are expecting a 25 basis point cut, I think it becomes more data dependent. I think we all agree that the July meeting is basically not data dependent. The Fed has all but promised they're going to cut rates uh, in two weeks. Uh, and I think uh, the further you go in time, the more the data does matter. And I think if we get data like we have uh, received over the past uh, four weeks, which have been you know quite stellar, if, if that continues for the next two months, then I think September is not a done deal in terms of a cut. However, if we do see some of the global uh, weakness we talked about feed into some of the domestic measures, then, then we probably uh, stay on a 25 a meeting until we feel that those um, risks are no longer there. So, Michael, you mentioned earlier the relatively strong uh, consumer consumer remains resilient. Mm-hmm. Do you think the consumer strength is enough to keep the U.S. economy out of a possible recession in 2020? Certainly. Uh, I think we saw something like that play out in 2015 when we also had a, uh, a global slowdown, uh, somewhat different in nature, but, you know, same, same general idea, which is the globe slowed, um, manufacturing slowed. Uh, CapEx was even weak, domestically even weaker then than it is now, but the consumer kept us going. And so I think that's a pretty recent template for how we can now, avoid uh, recession next year. Michael, I hate you. I'm going to have to read every single word of U.S. Global Dimensions of the Low Domestic are started as a terrific essay, clearly uh, the lead for research piece of the summer. And by that, I mean it's exactly two pages, one paragraph long, which is my kind of research piece. <laughs> Michael Ferroli is the J.P. Morgan, always thinking outside the box. Right now, we want to talk to uh, Nathan Hager uh, right now about John Paul Stevens. Nathan, uh, mm. he is a giant of the judiciary, and he has died at a ripe old age. Tell us about John Paul Stevens. Yeah, it's a solemn occasion, Tom, in this often divided city. Retired Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens was 99 years old when he died yesterday. Seen as a moderate conservative when first selected to join the federal bench by Richard Nixon in 1970. Five years later, Stevens was nominated to the Supreme Court by Gerald Ford. Judge Stevens is held in the highest esteem by his colleagues in the legal profession and the judiciary and has had an outstanding career in the practice and the teaching of law as well as on the federal bench. I am confident that he will bring both professional and personal qualities of the highest order to the Supreme Court. Though a Republican president appointed him, Stevens went on to become a leading liberal voice on presidential powers, individual rights, and the death penalty, an issue he addressed recently in an appearance on the PBS NewsHour. My own thinking, it took quite a while to really reach the conclusion that the death penalty does more harm than good. It's a terribly expensive and really a pointless process because it, I think it accomplishes very little that can't be accomplished with more humane punishment. Stevens also voted in the majority in the controversial Roe v. Wade decision on abortion, a matter he discussed as recently as this year. In the long run, it seems to me that abortion is a necessary procedure that will be recognized and will be 
uh, performed lawfully. Stevens was fond of writing separate opinions to make fine legal distinctions. He eventually evolved into a coalition builder, whose handiwork included the 2004 opinion that said U.S. courts had authority over suspected terrorists held at Guantanamo Bay. Stevens retired in 2010 during the presidency of Barack Obama. At the age of 90, he was the second oldest justice in U.S. history. Justice Stevens has courageously served his country from the moment he enlisted the day before Pearl Harbor to his long and distinguished tenure on the Supreme Court. During that tenure, he has stood as an impartial guardian of the law. He's worn the judicial robe with honor and humility. In retirement, Stevens remained engaged in public debate. Just last year, he called for the repeal of the Constitution's Second Amendment. Stevens spoke about the push to curb gun rights with ABC's George Stephanopoulos. The amendment would merely prevent uh, uh, arguments being made that Congress doesn't have the power to do what I think is in the best public interest. But to be clear, if Congress passed a national ban on individual gun ownership, That would be constitutional under your amendment. I think that's right. Following word of Justice Stevens passing, the White House issued a statement saying his work will continue to shape the legal framework of our nation for years to come and his passion for the law and for our country will not soon be forgotten. And Chief Justice John Roberts says that Stevens brought kindness, humility, wisdom and independence to the Supreme Court. Uh, Again, John Paul Stevens died at a hospital in Fort Lauderdale, Florida yesterday. Complications following a stroke at the age of 99. And Tom and Paul really does harken back to a different time in the Supreme Court where nowadays uh, you can see the divide so starkly uh, on the high court. uh, The the kind of uh, consensus building uh, that Stevens aimed for uh, seems to be at times uh, a lost art in Washington. Nathan Hager, thank you so much. Just a terrific summary there of uh, the justices' life. Paul Sweeney, what's extraordinary about the span of his American history as a child, he was at the game where Babe Ruth pointed to wow. center field. Is that right? And he has recollections of yep. Ruth yep. pointing to center field. And, and, of course, part of the greatest <clears throat> generation, World War II enlisting. Uh, oh, know, yeah, absolutely. Just, just but you know, yeah, the only equivalencies I know in the modern time would be Avril Harriman. And to go back to the middle of the history, John Hay, who was, of course, a Lincoln secretary uh, and then ended up as Secretary of State with Teddy Roosevelt. But... Uh, an extraordinary public and private life of John Paul uh, Stephen. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.